that. Let's, um, let's get into Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. I'd appreciate your prayers uh, for us <coughs> Excuse me, this week. Uh, we head out early Tuesday morning, Lord willing, uh, to fly out and eventually end up in the Baffin Island in northern Canada, and really looking forward to that. Um, I think, though, when we're there, it'll be kind of like a balmy 10 or 9 degrees or something like that, uh, contrary to what they've been experiencing. We might have just started to catch it on the change into warmer weather. But uh, anyway, we've been looking through an overview of Acts and then got into the missionary journeys. Now we find ourselves in the uh, second missionary journey. And Paul had made it uh, so far as to get to Athens, um, and we'll look at, well, let me, let me step back here to the first missionary journey just a second. There we go. The first missionary journey, you remember, they headed out from the church at Antioch, from which the Holy Spirit had said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. And uh, they went there, went uh, through Cyprus here, up into the area of Galatia here, and then basically reversed their steps, except for here, they swung back to here. That was the first missionary journey. That's as far as they had made it in their visits. And then uh, we read that they went into the second missionary journey where they started by, instead of sailing through Cyprus, they went up north here and came to a couple cities that they had been to before, a few, Lystra, Derby, Iconium, and, um, and there they met and found and, if you will, adopted Timothy into the missionary team. But then they tried to figure out where to go in here. They were, they were pushing westward, and uh, the Holy Spirit wasn't letting them go here. He wasn't letting them go there. And so finally, they end up at Troas, and there they, um, as we call it, they, uh, Paul saw the Macedonian uh, or the vision there at night. And let me get to a better... Yeah, here we go. Uh, There, uh, Paul came through here, eventually made it over to Troas. Then they went over to here and got to Philippi. Then they went through a couple other cities, got to uh, Thessalonica, then to Berea. We talked about these where uh, Philippi, the the converts there, potentially the demon-possessed girl, and then the Philippian jailer and Lydia, uh, the seller of purple, unique... um, unique group of people right there. Then he went to Thessalonica. You remember how he went to the synagogue and, and what happened, some of what happened there. But then he went to Berea. And remember what he said about the people in Berea? We, I, maybe it was last week or the week before we dealt with this. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. We talked about what that nobility of character was. Specifically, it was that they were researchers. I I like to put it, investigative journalists. They just didn't take Paul at his word as he made claims about the Old Testament scriptures. So they went back and they researched the claims to see whether those things were so. And because of that mentality, because of their research, then many did come to believe. And you know that when they came to believe, it was a very informed faith at that point. They weren't just taking Paul at his word. They were taking the word at its word. And uh, so he went to Berea. Then he had to flee Berea as well. So they accompanied him down to Athens. You remember then he sent word back to, uh, to bring a couple other men to, down with him to Athens. And boy, while, while he was there, he just saw the city wholly given to what? 
idolatry. That's right. So wholly given to idolatry. Not to say that the other cities weren't pagan uh, or that they didn't have uh, false worship. But boy, Athens, if there was a place for idols, it was Athens. And you think about the... Um, the pantheon of, of gods, and even one, as Paul addresses later, uh, the altar to the unknown God. And Paul uses that later as a foothold to say, let me tell you about that unknown God. And he immediately sets up the supremacy of the unknown God, uh, that he is the creator God. He is not bound to, uh, to an idol. He can't be worshipped with uh, men's hands or is not contained in that way. So that's in Athens. That's about where we're, <coughs> excuse me, where we're at right now. We come to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 and verse number 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. And you see that uh, Corinth is just west of Athens there, still in the region of Achaia. And found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus. So remember, he, he, he met Aquila and Priscilla. They were of the same trade, that is, they made tents. And so he, uh, he kind of lodged or, or, or hung with them. And verse 4 says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. Again, we've talked about how he would have done this. It wasn't, I scream and holler loud enough and sweat and, you know, give an occasional derogatory comment to whoever might disagree with me. No, I actually give you reasoned arguments from the word of Scripture, which you already accept, okay, because he's in a synagogue here, and I show you that God has fulfilled that Scripture in a specific person, and here's the proofs that he has fulfilled it in that, in that specific person. So he reasoned with them, persuaded the Jews and the Greeks, and verse 5, when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus, that's the person, was Christ, that is, if you will, the, um, the prophesied office or the prophesied person there. Uh, Jesus, uh, the person from Nazareth, was indeed the Christ, that is, the foretold deliverer in Jewish scripture. And verse 6 says, and when they opposed themselves, and, and this is going to be one of multiple reactions that you'll see in the scriptural account of how people respond when they don't want to accept the truth, okay? One of the, he, he, he words it this way in this passage, they opposed themselves and blasphemed. Um, they, were, they weren't even totally making sense because they were contradicting, it sounds like to me, they were contradicting their own arguments and, and now they begin to spew out these railings, you know, and, and uh, <clears throat> in this it's a blasphemy. He took it, he shook his raiment, said unto them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean from henceforth. I will go into the Gentiles. We talked last week about what that shaking of the garment, but the idea that the responsibility now lies on your head. I have fulfilled my part. Um, you have rejected and thus I uh, move on. And he says, henceforth, I will go into the Gentiles. Now, uh, I think this is, you see this pattern, remember as he goes from city to city, we repeatedly see that he went to the synagogue. Uh, we read in Romans uh, the, the phrase, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, okay? Um, to the Jew first, if you will, chronologically. I believe that's how I, I would interpret that, is that chronologically, of course, the, the, the scriptures came 
to and through the Jews, uh, they had first access to and revelation of the Messiah himself. He came unto his own, that is the Jewish people, and his own received him not. Okay? Now, the light was going to go to the Gentiles. He was going to commission his disciples via the New Testament church to spread the word to the rest of the world, but the Jews had it first. Okay? Well, Paul follows that pattern in his missionary journey that I'm going to address the Jewish people first in this city, but if they reject, I'm going to move on. Okay? Um, and so <clears throat> he says, I'm going on to the Gentiles, verse 7, and he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshiped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue, <coughs> excuse me, and Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. Now we mentioned last week toward the end of our lesson that the construction here, there's two ways um, in, in the Greek language to give a negative, okay? Or excuse me, to give like a negative prohibition. One means don't. The other one means stop, okay? What's the difference? One means you haven't started it. The other one means you've already started it, now stop. They both mean don't do it, uh, but one indicates that it had already started. The, uh, the one in this passage is stop. In other words, Paul, stop fearing. Stop fearing. And in this, I don't say this with the intention to like cast Paul down. Like, Paul, my goodness, how could you be so carnal? But to say, even Paul feared. Um, and let me say, while, while he's telling Paul, stop, you know, I, I don't want to say it's okay to fear. I want to say it's natural to fear. You say, I, you know why I don't witness? Because I'm afraid. Right. I would, and I would, as I thought about it in my study, as I thought about it, I would say that would probably have to be the main or one of the two main reasons, broadly speaking, why people do not witness. Okay? Um, now underneath fear, <clears throat> we could have a legitimate uh, or we could have a... Um, uh, a properly motivated fear, and then you could have an arrogant fear. What I mean by that is, I'm afraid of how I'll look. I'm afraid they'll laugh at me, okay? Or there could be, I'm afraid I'm going to get beat up, <laughs> okay, persecuted. Either one's a fear, uh, not, not right. On the other side, or on, the, on another option, if they don't fear, it's just that they genuinely don't care. And we would call that apathy with a capital A, Right? But one of the main reasons that sincere people who want to obey the Lord don't reach out and don't try to navigate a conversation toward the gospel is fear. Okay? Um, stop fearing. Well, how do you stop fearing? Okay? Let me, let's ask, what could we do in, in the design of God? What, what would he want us to do um, to, to overcome what we perceive to be the stumbling block to our witnessing. Uh, I'm afraid of what they'll say. I'm afraid I won't know what to say. I'm afraid um, they'll laugh at me or that I'll lose their friendship. I'm afraid that, and we could go on. How do we deal with some of those fears? 
What do you think? Carla? <laughs> yeah. Good. Carla mentions the, uh, the idea of, uh, she's been amazed that when she has prayed prior to talking to someone, how it seems that the Holy Spirit just opened up that opportunity, that the peer person even brought it up or, or gave, uh, gave an entrance into that conversation. So how could we address that fear? Well, number one, we could pray and say, uh, God, help me, okay? God, work in this situation. Um, Here's, I think, a danger of witnessing is um, wanting, and may, this isn't every personality, but there are some personalities that, um, that strive for perfection. And so if it's not perfect, I'm not going to do it, okay? Um, and I, I'm not ready in every detail, so I'm not ready. Well, when are you going to be ready to answer every question that someone's going to bring up to you in a gospel conversation? Probably never, okay? Um, when are you going to be able to recall every verse you intended to? Well, there's the, the probability that you no, you're not going to be able to recall one, okay? Um, when, when are you never going to be nervous if you've never done it before? Unless you're just like one of those kind of like really type A um, you know, cocker spaniel, you love people, you're not nervous around anybody anytime, um, then you're probably going to be nervous. You see what I'm saying is that, yes, prayer to say, God, would you help me? And at a certain point, we're just going to have to go. We're just going to have to go. Um, there was a book came out years ago, um, and, and the author of it, I'm, I'm aware, was one of the, if you will, progenitors of the um, mega church movement. So I'm not, I'm not advocating that. I just liked the title of the book because immediately it resonated to say, I get what he's saying. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's what he's actually saying, but if I would use that phrase, what I would be saying, he said, just walk across the room. Just walk across the room. In other words, what, to me, what I, what I heard was just start just take the first step. You've heard people say in an invitation, just take the first step, right? Once we take the first step and we've, we've overcome that barrier of saying, excuse me, could you let me out? The path is kind of cleared because we've, oh, we've opened that. When I see somebody and I say, I think the Lord wants me to talk to that person, Oh, oh, I started going through all this mental wrangling, why I shouldn't do it, why I'm not prepared, and why now is not a good day, and what they look like, and how I feel, and, and this and that, and this and that. Um, if I just take that first couple steps and start heading for that person, then what am I doing? Then I just trust the Lord to help me step by step, okay? Now, this may be a side, this just contributes to the conversation, um, Take every opportunity as far as it goes and be happy with that, okay? What do I mean by that? I mean, you're not going to get all the way, th you, 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 like you say, well, I didn't get the whole gospel delivered. That's okay. You weren't necessarily supposed to. Um, you you uh, took that opportunity if it was to get as far as to uh, just uh, ask a question Maybe you asked a question, you got, you got a couple thoughts in about God, you brought up the issue of sin, and they closed the door. All right. 
That's as far as you were supposed to go. That was your responsibility, okay? Um, so, so have a proper expectation, but oh, I don't know exactly what to say or how I'll say it. Just start the conversation, okay? Um, <coughs> all that to say, Paul, or like the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, and this is, this is um, highly educated Apostle Paul. This was the cosmopolitan Apostle Paul, um, you know, and, we, we, and maybe we overthink that. Maybe we think, you know, Paul was so beautifully suited to missions because he just was comfortable in every situation. If we think that, we're wrong. Okay? Now, why might Paul have, um, have feared? This is conjecture, but why do you think he might have feared? Okay, okay. <clears throat> now, this far away from home... Maybe not, but I like Fred's point. He said, people may remember what he used to be. Paul, I remember you. You were like this, this rabid Pharisee. What are you talking about? What, what are you doing? Okay. Uh, they could remember who he used to be. Ron. Okay, good. He was preaching a God other than Caesar. Because you remember the concept of Caesar. Um, that to claim there is a king other than Caesar was, uh, what do we call that, treason, essentially. Um, and so <coughs> could he have feared uh, evoking a governmental response? Okay. True, he was a Roman, and yet to be preaching now Jesus and not elevating Caesar as God, that was a dangerous thing to do. Why else might he have feared? <laughs> the poor guy got beat up and thrown in jail all the time. The, the thing that rings in my mind was the first missionary journey. Do you remember what happened about the middle of the first missionary journey? He was stoned and left for dead. How long do you think that hurt? Do you think that had residual physical effects? Do you think he was ever quite the same after having rocks thrown at him until he, he was passed out and basically looked dead? Yeah, somehow he, he uh, by the grace of God, had strength to get up again and go back into the city. But besides physiologically and physically, um, do you think that could have put a little bit of trepidation on a, on a, on a physical, fleshly note? Yeah, I, you know, who really wants to say, yeah, well, I've been stoned before, I can handle that. Or is it, well, I'd really rather not do that again. Um, could he fear that kind of response? Because you saw in Thessalonica, yeah, they get mad and they basically drive him out of town. He goes to Berea. And the people from Thessalonica follow him to Berea. And they, they, he's got to flee out of town again. Okay? This is, he's got kind of this rabid group of anti Paulicians, if you will. They do not like what he's doing. It's not like, ah, go away. It's not the American, I don't want to talk. Close the door. These people were out to try to wreak havoc, and, um, and, and they went to extremes, okay, um, to gather lewd men of the baser sort, to set the city on an uproar, to assault the house of Jason. And we're going to see something else here shortly <coughs> to see what they do. So anyway, he feared. Do we have reasons to fear uh, um, there are reasons that we do fear, but just as God said, Paul, stop fearing. Stop fearing. I just want to tell us, 
Stop fearing. Don't let, that, don't let that perpetually be a stumbling block to your witnessing. Now, not to say that if you ever fear, uh, you, make, you, know, you say right now, that's it, I'm not going to fear. And tomorrow you fear, oh, that's it. You know, you, God's going to set you on a shelf. What I mean is address that again and say, no, I'm not supposed to fear. I'm not supposed to fear. How do I do that? I pray. I just trust the Lord. I just I take the first steps. I trust the Lord. And by the one, way, one thing we didn't get to, you say, I'm afraid I won't know what to say. You know how you help, help conquer that fear? Start learning what to say. Okay? Uh, do, put some elbow, elbow grease in to think about it. Maybe write out your testimony. Look up some verses. Begin to think about the issue of the gospel. Maybe even in your own mind, what if somebody said this? How would I answer that? Begin to prepare yourself. Now, will you be pre- prepared uh, in perfection for every encounter? No. But will you be better prepared? Yes. Should be. So anyway, there's different ways to handle those things. Let's stop fearing. Now, in chapter 18, <clears throat> they, uh, uh, he says, verse 10, For I am with thee, that is the Lord speaking to Paul, I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. Neat promise right there. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And then it tells how... <clears throat> how Jews made insurrection, again, verse 12, uh, against Paul, brought him to the judgment seat. Oh, no, what's going to happen? They, they accuse Paul, and Paul just about defends himself, and he doesn't even have to say anything because the judge says, look, Jews, if this were a matter of our law, I'd deal with it, but this is just your, this is just your, your law. I don't want to hear it. Get out of here. And so he, he actually drives them or casts them out uh, or declines to hear the case if you will. And then, verse 17, then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. I know, to me, that's just, um, uh, not only did they not get against Paul what they wanted, but, um, but people just got uh, miffed about it and beat Sosthenes right there in front of the judgment seat. And it said, and Gallio cared for none of those things. He just, he uh, washed his hands, but he really wasn't interested. It wasn't his jurisdiction. Verse 18, and Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. So now Priscilla and Aquila have also joined the, the team, having shorn his head in Centria, for he had a vow, and he came to Ephesus and left them there, that is Aquila and Priscilla. But he himself entered into the synagogue, that's what, it's what he typically does, and reasoned with the Jews. When they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. So we see in the second missionary journey that he comes around from Athens to Corinth, and then uh, he goes over to Ephesus and simply touches Ephesus little time, and they say, hey, tell us more. No, I've got to go. I've got to go, okay? And then you're going to see he begins to wind his way back without really spending much time anywhere and gets back to, uh, gets back to Jerusalem. So he says, um, uh, and when he had, um, verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and went and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. And after, verses 23, and after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now, if you don't catch it exactly, what just happened between verse 22 and verse 23 is he just started the third missionary journey. That's 
a kind of abrupt one as you're studying the missionary's journeys. You're like, he comes back, he salutes the church, and then boom, he's off again. And we don't know the exact timeline, um, but you see that because it says he goes through Phrygia and, uh, and I think it's Galatia. So here's your end of your second missionary journey. He's wound all the way there up through Macedonia down into Achaia, uh, the area of Greece there, and then comes over, sails back to Jerusalem. Remember, he wanted to be there. Comes up to the church, <clears throat> reports there, and then we get into our third missionary journey and starts there again and swings back the way he had started the second missionary journey. So verse 23 says, after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Well, I circled on the map there so you understood Galatia is a broad region. It's not a city, but Galatia there and Phrygia. In other words, he had already been there and there had been churches planted. There were disciples there. And so in an orderly fashion, he begins to go ding, 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 ding and make those visits throughout that territory. Now, that's quite a summary there in verse 23. And it says, verse 24, and a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. Now, this kind of sidetracks from the, uh, <clears throat> from the missionary journey here for a minute to go back over to Ephesus, which is on the, in the yellow part there, right against the coast, uh, about halfway down, there's Ephesus. Remember, uh, who had he left in Ephesus on his way back from the second missionary journey? Aquila and Priscilla. Remember, they went with him from Corinth, and he brought them to Ephesus, left them there. Now, Apollos comes through Ephesus. Apollos, um, it says, is an eloquent man, mighty in the Scriptures. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard... They took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Now, there, boy, there's a lot here, and we'll come back to it in just a minute. <laughs> and when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. Now, this little snippet of Apollos is really neat. Um, so tell me again, what does it tell us about Apollos, about his gifting, if you will, or his skill, his ability? What's the word? Good. He was an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures. So he had a good command, a good understanding of what the Scriptures said, and he could verbalize uh, his reasoning in, in a way that was powerful. But it also tells us that his knowledge lacked a little bit. He was limited. He only knew the baptism of John. Bap John came preaching the baptism of repentance. In other words, if, you're, if, I, if I could put it this way in my, my way of thinking and wording, if you're ready to receive the Messiah, let's baptize here showing your mindset of being prepared for the Messiah tracking with me? That's baptism of John, okay? Um, that's all that Apollos knew. So wherever he had learned, whatever he had gathered, um, that's what he knew about baptism, okay? So, so he, he lacked a little bit of context, and yet there he is diligently proclaiming what he knows in the synagogue. You know what I say? 
That's neat. Praise the Lord. Good job for a man who's taking the knowledge that he has and diligently using it. Do we stand back and go, oh, yeah, but Apollos didn't, Apollos didn't know at all. He obviously lacked some things, so I'm not sure I could fellowship with him, right? Because he doesn't know what I know. Um, in fact, uh, I've got to distance myself from Apollos. What did Aquila and Priscilla do? They said, hey, let's come on over. And <laughs> it doesn't say this. <clears throat> come on over for some coffee cake. If you don't like coffee, let's have coffee cake. And, um, and let's talk over some scripture. Um, and so they talked over scripture, and they began to teach Apollos. Now, here he is, an eloquent man. Okay, now, on the one hand, what I'm saying is that a guy may be diligent to use what he knows of the Lord, but he doesn't know it all. Okay, okay. What is our response to that? When we sense in him that we disagree, and the reason we disagree, we may not know it at first, but I think they figured it out in conversation, is that he simply didn't know it. It wasn't that he had come to a different conclusion. He had read the scriptures, and, and this is where he stood. He simply didn't know it, okay? And so Aquila and Priscilla fill him in on the details. Are we ever willing to try to sit down with, uh, with a brother with maybe whom we feel like we disagree and see if maybe there's some filling in that we could help to do, right? Now, hold on to your horses here just a second and don't read too much into what I'm saying, but have you ever considered that maybe you'd sit down with a brother and find out that you don't know everything that you think you know? That maybe your context isn't as full as you think it is? Wow. Okay, we need to be ready to, ready to learn. Yes, Ron. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Ron says it's like when uh, the difference between witnessing to somebody with a church background versus someone with no religious background, um, and in similar way, Apollos uh, had a knowledge of those Hebrew scriptures, and so again they could say, let's fill in the gaps of this, the, uh, <coughs> the fulfillment of these Hebrew scriptures. If you're trying to witness to somebody who may have a church background, they're a little familiar with the, the terms, the concepts, the scripture, you already have a somewhat of a common ground there uh, than trying to rebuild their worldview from the ground up. Um, so so you, anyway, are we willing to... to um, they think the best about someone and then try to invest in them. And I don't, I, don't, I don't mean that as a proud statement like, you know, we always have it right. But really, if you feel like you've got it right and you've got, you feel like 
this guy, boy, he's passionate. I love his passion. He, he, he know, what he knows, he's diligent, diligently willing to share. I just think he needs to know more. I wonder, if I, could, I wonder if I could fill him in on some of these things. This guy could, could be even more of an asset for the Lord. Are we willing to, to invite someone like that and say, hey, have you ever considered that the scripture says this? Isn't that exciting? How about this? I noticed you said this. What about this thought as an extension right here? Oh, wow, yeah, that's great. Now, the, the next step, Apollos, though he was mighty and though he was eloquent, he was willing to learn. That says a lot about Apollos. We don't know much about him, but we say, wow, this guy's a, this guy's a well-rounded guy because not only could he speak well, but he was willing to acknowledge when he didn't know it all. He wanted his view to be uh, rounded out. He wanted to know what he was supposed to know. And even if it was these two tent makers, obviously he was the better speaker, right? Obviously he could command a platform maybe better than Aquila and Priscilla could in a public debate forum. But he was willing to sit under the tutelage, if you will, of this husband and wife and receive instruction from them and thus be even more helpful as he went on um, to, to be a, a support and a help to other believers as well. That's really neat. Um, in chapter 19 now, chapter 19, good, we've got a little bit of time left, came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. So now Apollos has moved, but um, Paul comes to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, have you received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? They said unto him, We've not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, unto the, What then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about 12. And then he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months. Now, not uncommon. This was his manner. Spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Okay, that was that expected Jewish kingdom. We would call it the millennial kingdom, the fulfillment of the, uh, of the covenants, right? The Abrahamic, Davidic, <clears throat> things like that. Um, the kingdom of God, okay? He's disputing these things, and of course, the kingdom program in the New Testament has different facets of it. Uh, we understand that Jesus is the king of, if you will, uh, a kingdom of hearts now, but his kingdom, he says to Pilate, is not of this world, though one day, uh, one day it will be located on this world, right? When he comes to, uh, to reign in the millennial kingdom, and he'll rule and reign forever. But... Um, it says that, that um, let me find my place again. And um, he said, and he, so he's disputing the things concerning the kingdom of God, verse 9, but when divers, that means various ones, were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them, 
separated the disciples disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. Okay, fine, I won't go to the synagogue. You're hardened, you won't believe. Again, I'm going to separate, I'm going to move over here, and I'm going to set up another venue, if you will, in the school of Tyrannus, and I'm going to continue to do the same thing. And this continued by the space of how long? Two years. Now, what had been the longest that we know of, according to the text, up to this point that he had spent in one area? 18 months in Corinth, correct. It said 18 months, and then he spent more time in Corinth. We don't know exactly how much. But by the text, two years now in Ephesus, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Wow, this was pretty effective, okay? Um, now, we could, we could ramble around on this for a while, but I guess one point I would want to make is that uh, there are different ways to do things. We may call it a methodology. Um, how do you accomplish the Great Commission? You know, what's your, uh, what's your modus operandi? Well, I intend to visit every house and every city. And Okay, well, if that's what God calls you to do, in this particular case, Paul was staying in one spot. He was reasoning, 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 reasoning with these people. And then guess what happened? They probably traveled, and word went out. Now, maybe he traveled <laughs> on the weekends. No, I don't. Uh, whatever his schedule was. But I don't think that he was visiting every house in every city in Asia. But somehow the word was getting out in all of Asia, Luke writes. Uh, how was that? When he, it seemed like he was really focusing on Ephesus. Okay, well, Ephesus, I think, was a considerable hub right there. And, uh, and from there, the word was going out. Um, So one man might be called to go to the mission field, and he wants to witness and evangelize and move on and witness and evangelize and move on and witness and evangelize, okay? Another guy says, I'm going to stay right here. I'm going to essentially set up a Bible college. That's the mode we typically see. And I'm going to train the preachers to go out to here and there and there, okay? Uh, Brother Stensus did that when we visited him, um, was it 2012? Uh, I don't remember exactly what the year was. We went to Uganda, and, uh, and that was really neat. And uh, it was something that he had learned over time in his culture that to go as a white man into that culture, they see like this ginormous dollar sign on you. Cha-ching! You know, you're smart, you're rich because you're American. And so you have a church, you plant a church, you build the building, and you say, I'm going to hand it over to National. And you give it to a national, and you go away, and guess what? They say, well, the national, the national doesn't know as much as the American knew, you know? And the national doesn't have the money that the American had, and things just don't go real well all the time. That wasn't really successful. And he noted that, noticed that, and kind of shifted gears, if you will, and developed a new uh, methodology in his missions to where he started training men to go out. And he said, now you need to go, uh, and he would train them specifically, step by step, you need to go uh, and you need to evangelize and you need to start having a Bible study. Don't call it church, but it's a Bible study and I'll make you a solar panel that will power your light bulb for you to have a Bible study and you start having a Bible study and then, and then here's the next step. And, and he would lead them along, okay, to, to build this thing and he said, maybe I would be seen once, twice, maybe three times with him. But if I was seen very much with that person, the the typical perspective of that was, wait, you're with the American. What are you getting? I want some of it too. 
So he, didn't, he wanted to keep himself out of the picture. And so he would train these men to go out. And by the time we had done, been there, I think he'd only been doing that, I want to say maybe seven years, maybe my time is a little bit off. It wasn't very many years, and they were, I think, at about 17 churches. Okay? Uh, it was much more effective. It was a methodology. But he was staying in one place, training men to go out, and then training them to train the other people that they need to go out and do the same thing. That they need to go witness, and they need to start do it. They need to start uh, uh, duplicating the work. Okay, and it's similar to what Paul was doing here. I, in my mind, it's not to say that every guy has to do it exactly the same, but you certainly have to be uh, uh, alert to the whole, how the Holy Spirit's leading <clears throat> and what the Scripture says. Um, now he says, verse eleven, and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. And when people gave a small token to his ministry, they were blessed beyond measure. Oh, I'm just kidding. That's a televangelist there. I was adding uh, to the uh, to the text. Verse thirteen. Then certain of the vagabond Jews. Now here again, here's a response. Here's a response to his ministry. Certain of the vagabond Jews exorcists. Oh, no, I was thinking something different. This is funny, too, though. Took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preached. <laughs> and there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, of the chief, a chief, and chief of the priests, which did so. So this chief priest had seven sons, and they said, hey, you know what? We're going to go and exercise power over these demons in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, okay? And so, verse 15, the evil spirit, they, they, tried, they tried this. And now imagine, they're all seven of them are in the room. You know, this is like a group effort, all seven brothers. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overcame them, prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That would be quite a sight. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. You know, the Lord can use that too to magnify himself. When somebody tries to do something in a shallow and hypocritical way or take upon them power or, or, or authority that's not theirs, and, um, and what do they do? Uh, you know, the Lord, people see that. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah, so God... You know, God is, God is real, and, and, uh, and his, his authority is not something to be trifled with. And, you know, even demons are real, and they're powerful, and yet people, this Paul who has real authority from God, he has the ability um, to see these miracles happen, and we need to listen, need to, listen to him. And, uh, and then verse 17, uh, or excuse me, uh, yeah, verse 17, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts before, or excuse me, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. I mean, they saw a purge, a purge of this, whether it's demonic or, or, or worldly resources that they had. These people that well, I'd say demonic, the curious arts, brought these things and burned them. They were done with it. They were showing uh, a transformation in their own life of their desires, their direction. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Now we go back to what's the purpose of the book of Acts? Well, one of the purposes is it tells us how, how did we get from resurrection 
to later New Testament. How did, how did this church, how did these cowering disciples <laughs> um, at the end of the Gospels end up into a worldwide movement rooted throughout the known world? Well, it's giving us tastes of this. And as he persuaded people, and as he evangelized, and God worked through him some miracles to validate what he was doing, people were believing. People were gathering the truth. They were, they were saying, you know, this curious art stuff, I'm done with it. I'm burning that. And the word of God multiplied. The name of the Lord was magnified. And uh, so that's, this is great. Now, verse 21, we've only got a couple minutes. And after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been uh, there, I must also see Rome. So he went into Macedonia, two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. And the same time, there arose no small stir about that way. Now, that's what I was thinking. We're going to have to hit that, not next week, because I'll be gone, but the following week. Uh, again, the visceral response to the gospel and sometimes the unthinking uh, manner of people. And uh, is, my, uh, is my watch incorrect here? Okay, maybe I'm a little uh, behind. But um, the response of people and, and the way that they uh, respond to things. And I, I want you to think about as we look into this next part of the passage, people in the United States even, and our response to things and how people can be ginned up with very minimal information to, uh, to just react and, and chant and yell until somebody goes, wait, what are you doing? What are you doing? Okay? We ought to be a reasoning people that's, uh, that know, that's in control of what we're doing. Let's, uh, let's close. We're towards the end of our...